0: Romans 15 we are given this assurance that the nature of God's word stems from the very nature of God himself our God is the God of all comfort therefore his word gives us comfort that we might endure in hope as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return no wonder then that God calls us to pay careful attention to his word because there is comfort in close reading Good morning again. Uh, it's such a privilege to be able to explore the theme of church with you across the course of this term. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to get to the Zachariah passage, uh, that would be the place to land your Bibles uh, across the course of the next few minutes. Uh, as with last week, there are some uh, verses on the sermon outline, not every verse that we will look at, uh, but some verses there just to save you with some Bible flicking and uh, so that you can see where I'm getting these things from. Uh, I am going to lead us in prayer. And then we can uh, explore uh, this theme of gathering uh, this morning. Father in heaven, uh, we praise you that you speak. We praise you that your word is living and active. We praise you that your scriptures endure through the ages. And we praise you and thank you humbly and with joy that the scriptures give us everything that we need to be wise for salvation and to be equipped for righteousness. And so, Father, as we hear your word now, write it upon our hearts, we pray. Transform us. Give us cause to repent. Give us cause to be encouraged, to be rebuked, to be built up, that we, in beholding you, may be transformed by your spirit to live lives to your glory. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is church? And what place does church have in God's plans? Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, just before evening church, as we were beginning to set up, there was a kids' party uh, just before uh, we got into the building and they were exiting and the birthday boy had already left, uh, but his sister was still in the building. She was about four and dressed up like uh, a fairy and uh, doing things that four-year-old girls do. And uh, she was quite confident. And she said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, we're preparing for church. And she goes, oh, okay, and we talked about her brother's birthday party, and then she left with her dad. And on the way out, I didn't get to hear the answer, uh, she turned to her dad and said, what's a church? That's kind of the age that we live in these days. We might have some understanding of what church is, but we live in an increasingly secular world that has no idea about what a church is, and certainly no idea about a church that might meet in a building like this. What is it? Sometimes we might ask that question as well. And we might wonder about the importance or lack of importance that church might have in God's plans and what place church ought to have in our lives. If you're into word studies in the Bible, a bit easier to do these days uh, than back in the past, because you can just go on uh, various Bible software or online and do a search. Uh, The word church occurs 109, 110 times uh, in uh, our Bibles. That's less than once every 10 chapters for our mathematicians and statisticians amongst us and not once in the Old Testament and barely at all in the Gospels. And well, it's not very much, is it? Of course, an important theme in the Bible doesn't have to be reflected in the amount of time something is mentioned, but it gives us pause to wonder, well, how important is it really that we understand church? Church? As I mentioned last week, what I really want to do at the beginning of our series together is to understand the place church has in the wider plans and purposes of God. And to do that, we need to look at more than just the word church. Because the word church, which translates a particular Greek word, uh, it just means gathering. But it's not the only word for gathering in our Bibles. There is the word gathering itself, or assembly, or congregation, or synagogue, is just another word for gathering. The word synagogue occurs throughout the Old Testament, it occurs in the New Testament, to talk about Jewish meetings together, but nowhere does the New Testament ever describe church as a synagogue. It's trying to say that church is something new. The only time a church is described as a synagogue is in the letters to the seven churches, where uh, uh, Jesus says that this particular church is a synagogue of Satan. It's to critique them. But what we have in the word church, as we'll see in just a few moments time, it translates a particular Greek word, ecclesia, from which we get ecclesiology or ecclesiastical to talk about clergy. And that word is used quite often in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And as we go back into the Old Testament, we actually see a broader and greater understanding of God's purposes for gathering, for assembling, congregating a people for himself and to himself. And as we not just look back, but look forward to what is to come, dwelling, God being amongst a people, is the future of all creation. Far from being an accident of salvation, well, I've saved too many people and I don't know what to do with them until they're caught up to glory or I return. So what do I do with them? I'll just get them to meet together. Uh, Far from being an accident, It's central to God's plans and purposes. Sometimes you'll hear Christians ask, well, do we actually need to go to church to be saved? Well, the answer to that is, that's a bit of a nonsense question. Do you need to pray to be saved? Do you need to tell the truth to be saved? Well, no, but it's what saved people do because of the nature of the God we trust Church is not an accident, church is not the optional extra, church is not just something we do while we're waiting for the new creation, but as we will see, church is actually at the heart and centre of what he desires for humanity in this world. And in order to understand that, we have to go back to the place where church is first used, where the language of congregating is first described in our Bibles, And we'll be coming back to this particular passage and these events um, time and again over the course of the next few weeks. You see, 3,290 years ago, give or take a couple of years, an event happened in what is still Egypt today. I had to look it up uh, just before I came up to preach. I was convinced it was Saudi Arabia, but no, it's Egypt, and uh, it's true. Uh, I often know the geography of the ancient world a bit better than the modern world, just given my background and um, my interests. Uh, But it's still in Egypt today, in the Sinai Peninsula, an event happened on a particular day, at a particular time, at a particular point in space, and that event is fundamental to how we understand what we're doing right now. It occurred at Sinai. God with great signs and great wonders and with great dread and terror and judgment had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. He had brought them into the wilderness. And as Moses had been telling Pharaoh time and time again, it's so that the Israelites might meet with their God. They would go into a three day journey into the wilderness that they might meet with their God. And that's exactly what happened as they gather at Sinai. Yes, they gather at a mountain. Yes, they gather in the wilderness. Yes, they gather, but, it's more than that. They don't just gather, but they gather before God. And you see that in these verses from Exodus 19. They come out after the third new moon. They come out of the land. They're described, verse 1, as a people. Verse 2, they're described as people who are encamped. That is, they're gathered together. They're encamped at the mountain. And again, verse 3, they're called not just the people of Israel, but the house. They are a household, the household of Jacob but there is something more. At this event, God defines them in a different way. A different way. Look with me at verse four. He says there, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'm sure you use the phrase just as I use the phrase when we talk about assembly and gathering, when we talk about church. That we are the gathering the assembly of god's people we are god's church and that's true and that's right and for our anglicans amongst us who know your 39 articles that's exactly how church is defined the congregation of faithful men or believing people but church is more than that it's not less than that but it's more than that church is the gathering of god's people to himself. I brought you, verse 4, to myself. How we understand church must be more than just the gathering together of the people of God. But it is a victory, a conquering over the very things that we saw we cannot do last week. Our sin prevents us from coming into the presence of God. Our sin requires the judgment of scattering and distancing and separation, exclusion, being strangers to God. But instead, what happens here is more than a victory, uh, more than just a gathering. It is a victory where God gathers people to himself to be his people. Uh, For those who were at evening church last week, we saw that the holiness of God prevents us from coming into God's presence. He is utterly other. He is separate. He is different from us. And yet, what we have in the grace and mercy of God is that He nevertheless makes us fit to come into His presence. Church is the gathering of God's people to Himself. So significant is this event that in the Old Testament or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is called the day of the assembly, the day of the church. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, uh, Moses says, remember, this is 40 years later, remember the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, just another word for Sinai, when he said, assemble the people before me, church the people before me, that they may hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. In the Greek translation, it's called the day of the assembly, and that's exactly how Deuteronomy chapter 9 speaks of it as well. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. God gathers people to Horeb, to Sinai. God descends on the mountain in thick darkness and cloud and fire. They hear him speak, which we'll come back to over the course of the next couple of weeks. They gather in his presence, the day of the assembly, the day of the church. And it's not just a once off thing. Great, I've gathered you, now be on your way. The idea of God dwelling amongst his people remains right through the whole Old Testament. First with the tabernacle, the tent that's constructed uh, in the second half of the book of Exodus, a description that takes 20 chapters. And just in case you missed it the first time around from chapters 24 to 30, you get it again. Chapters 30 to 40, uh, the, uh, the building of the tabernacle, the tent where God meets his people. And that tabernacle goes around with the Israelites. Uh, in their journeys through the wilderness and then into the land and for their first period in the land. It exists in different places within the land and it's representative of God being amongst his people. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, when it's built, um, uh, the cloud that had led them out of Egypt, the pillar of uh, cloud by day, of fire by night, it comes and rests on the tabernacle. The glory of God fills the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter it because of the cloud. No one else could enter it because of the cloud. And the cloud became symbolic of God's presence, his glory dwelling in the middle of the people. As we'll see tonight, the entire encampment is gathered around with the tabernacle in the centre. But years later, centuries later, in 960 uh, BC or thereabouts, Solomon builds a temple. And the presence of God, God dwelling amongst his people, is given a new... uh, Understanding, no longer an impermanent tent, wandering around uh, the nation, but a permanent place in Jerusalem, built on the hill in Jerusalem called Zion, Mount Zion in the middle of Jerusalem. And again, when it's completed in 1 Kings 8, the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because the glory of God filled the house of the Lord. God dwelling amongst his people. And the phrase that's used is, the Lord is there. And right through the rest of the Old Testament, the idea of Jerusalem being the symbol of God's people, not just gathered, but God's people being with God in their midst, is how the Old Testament uh, uh, unfolds. So much so that when the exile happens and most of Judah is destroyed, and people went into exile in 597 BC, A lot of the Israelites who were in Israel said, that's okay, it's okay, we're in exile, but we've still got Jerusalem and we've still got the temple. God's still victorious because God's still amongst his people. 10 years later, 586 BC, it's all gone. Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and Ezekiel has a vision of this glory of God, leaving the temple and leaving the city. But he also has a vision of it coming back, of a temple being rebuilt, of a city being restored, of a glory of God coming back together. There is a promise of something better, and it's cosmic in scale. And so we come to the book of Zechariah, At the end of chapter seven, uh, we didn't read it out, but at the end of chapter seven, we hear again that theme of judgment as scattering. As I called and would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate so that no one went to and fro and the pleasant land was made desolate. God had scattered them, scattered them to the ends of the earth. But God is jealous for his people. God is concerned, God wants, God desires, God treasures having a people for his very own. And so Zechariah 8, 1 to 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion, the mountain on which, in Jerusalem on which the temple is built. I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, for I am jealous and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. God promises something that is a little bit strange in that he says it's already there, but he also says it's not there yet as well. Because while they had some sense of restoration after the exile, we're talking in the late 6th century BC, while there's some sense of restoration, yet they look for something better, something greater, something more grand than can be imagined. They'd rebuilt the temple, yes, but those who remember the first temple They wept because it was so small. Ezekiel's vision of the new temple is so grand on scale that nothing could possibly accommodate it. There is something better to come. God promises, verse seven and eight, to save his people from where they were scattered. He will bring them to dwell in the midst of the people. They shall be my people. I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ achieves. These shadows under the old covenant become a reality in the Lord Jesus. What was hoped for, what was longed for, what was symbolized in the Old Testament of God dwelling amongst his people becomes a reality when Jesus arrives on the scene. And he achieves that dwelling. He achieves that bringing us not just together, but to God through his death and resurrection. Ephesians two verses that I hope by the end of our time, you will know well and truly uh, uh, by memory. Ephesians two, he says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the Commonwealth, strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. And so he goes on in verse 19 to say, you are no longer aliens and strangers. You're no longer distant. You're no longer excluded. But we are fellow citizens, fellow citizens and members of the household of God. We are a place for God to dwell by his spirit. Or again in Romans chapter 8, we are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Far from being an accident, far from being uh, just a random, a small, minor theme in the scriptures, God's desire to have a people for himself God's desire to dwell with a people is actually at the heart of his salvation work. It's at the heart of salvation history. What you and I do together when we meet together is so much more than us meeting together. It's us meeting together in the presence of God by his spirit now who dwells within us. And what we do here and now is not just what we do while we're waiting for Jesus to return, for the new creation to come. It expresses, we'll see this in a few weeks' time, it expresses something of our spiritual reality, but it also reflects and expresses our future reality. Look with me at Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. He's not saying that heaven, the place where God dwells, is made new as well. When he says a new heaven and a new earth, he's just talking about a new creation. Everything that's below your feet and everything that's above your head. A new heaven and a new earth and the sea was no more. He's not saying for the surfers amongst us, not that Cherrybrook is particularly close to a beach, Um, uh, but uh, for the surfers amongst us, he's not saying, look, there's no water in the new creation, there's no sea, but the sea is the symbol of chaos. It's, uh, It's how chaos is described in this kind of cosmic language. There is a new creation in which that which makes for disorder and the undoing of creation and chaos is no more. But more than that, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, what was symbolic in the Old Testament of God dwelling with his people comes down out of the presence of God as a bride adorned for her husband, church language. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. Brothers and sisters, what we do on a Sunday morning What we do when we gather together in Jesus' name, it may be not understood by the world. It may be mocked by the world. It may be seen as irrelevant and indifferent by the world. At times, we may wonder, what on earth are we doing? Is it worth it to meet week in, week out, day in, day out, year in, year out with the people of God? We can wonder, why did God bother? What place does it have? hear the theme of the scriptures, that far from being incidental, church, God's people gathered, but more than that, God's people in the presence of God gathered, is central to his plans and purposes for you and for me. And what we do when we meet together expresses and reflects and victoriously fulfills that purpose. Of course, To be made fit for the presence of God, as we will see next week, requires salvation. And to come into the presence of God, as we've seen in these passages, is nothing less than peace, reconciliation, life and joy. That language in Zechariah 8, that uh, this symbol of a new Jerusalem where God dwells, old men and old women shall sit in the seats of Jerusalem with a staff in hand because they're so old. Their life is for days and ages. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets, a picture of peace and joy and serenity and prosperity and community and no fear, no threat, no concern. Or in Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There shan't be any mourning or crying or weeping or pain because all of that is done away not an accident, but central, gathered by God to God as his people. Brothers and sisters, reform our thinking. Reform your thinking. Let me reform my thinking. That what we do on a Sunday morning is nothing less than cosmic in scale, eternally significant. As we express and reflect God's desire for you and for me. And if there is any doubt about how God views it, listen to the language of Exodus again. You will be for me a treasured possession. A treasured possession. A few years ago when I worked uh, for a legal publisher, it's called Butterworths, it's called LexisNexis now, Uh, for those of you who are interested in legal texts, which I imagine is not many, Uh, I was working with a particular uh, group of people and uh, one of the ladies uh, came out one day uh, of the bathroom uh, with uh, some toilet paper in her hand and a bracelet on the top. And she said to uh, her friend uh, who was working beside her, I think you dropped this in the toilet. As it turns out, later on, uh, the girl who had dropped her bracelet in the toilet knew that she had dropped it in the toilet, uh, but she was too scared to put her hand in the toilet water and thought, I'm just leaving it. Um, But the next person in the toilet realised and uh, braved the water and fished it out. Um, God's view of us is not, look, it's in the toilet, too late. No, his view is, I will fish it out because it's a treasured possession. In fact, I will send my son into the muck and murk of this world because I love it so. God sees you and me. More than that, God sees you and me gathered together. More than that, God sees you and me gathered together in his presence as a precious thing. And so Zechariah 8, I am jealous. I am jealous for my people. I am jealous to have a people for myself. Jealous and zealous are just the same word, although we use them a bit differently in English. There is a negative jealousy that exists, but there is a positive jealousy as well. Imagine the married couple where the man is so filled by fear, so filled by possessiveness, so filled by greed or whatever it is, his wife cooks him a lamb roast. She's cooked me a lamb roast. She must be cheating on me. Or, she doesn't cook him a lamb roast. She didn't have time to cook a lamb roast. She must be cheating on me. That's a negative kind of jealousy. A jealousy that uh, is born out of fear, born out of paranoia. But there is a different kind of jealousy, isn't there? That a husband and wife can express to each other. A jealousy that burns with passion for their good and for their fidelity and for their growth and for their safety and for their protection. And that's exactly the jealousy that God has, the zealousness that he has for you and for me. God sees us as a treasured possession. How can we, therefore, do any less? God is jealous for us as a people in his presence. How could we have less than an attitude than that? We must be like our God. We must see things as he sees things. If he is jealous for us, if he sees us as precious, if he's willing to send his son to achieve these things, how great must we see, therefore, what God is doing in us? A couple of people asked last week, why would God bother? After Bible study, uh, one of the young adults asked, why would God even do this? Well, it's nothing in us but it is born purely out of a God who is love, who creates and redeems and saves at great cost a people that he might love and be with. Praise be to our God for that mercy, for that grace, for that majesty of what we do. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching hosted here at Comforting Close Reading. If you're looking for other resources, you can head over to our main site, scriptorium.net.au. If you have any questions, our email address is right at scriptorium.net.au.